You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Tim Sheens. Tim is an Australian rugby league coach. He played 166 games for the Penrith Panthers and then moved into coaching in 1984. He coached the Canberra Raiders to premierships in 1989, 1990 and 94 and then in 2005 led the West's Tigers to their first premiership. He has also coached the New South Wales team to the 1991 State of Origin Series win and the Australian team to the 2013 World Championship. Tim has been in the coaching business for over 40 years, and he has so much insight, wisdom, and ideas to share. Some of the ones that stayed with me afterwards were the philosophy he borrowed from an American coach of being consistent in treating everybody differently, and how as a result he doesn't see people management in black and white terms. How he identifies three things that effective teams need to be doing every week. The first is working on their public perception. The second is thinking about the opposition. And the third is making sure that small groups within the organisation 
don't start talking negatively about other small groups. And how the best coaches are good recruiters and they select people who are going to suit their style. And just before we go to the interview, today's podcast is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, bringing together world-leading professors, executives and industry partners to teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business School's MBA. And now, please enjoy our interview with Tim Sheens. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Tim Sheens, good afternoon and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm thrilled to get you on. You're a you're a, a legend of rugby league here in Australia, and I'm I'm just thrilled that you said yes. So, so Tim, before we get going though, could you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been doing so far today? Um, I'm living uh, in Sydney. I've, I've spent prior to coming back to the Tigers last year, I'd spent uh, six or seven years in England. Um, and um, becoming a citizen as well, so dual citizenship. And um, uh, my wife and I quite enjoy England, so we'll be travelling between, you know, there and here. So, but the the club asked me to come back uh, initially to do administration. And then, of course, uh, it moved forward on to interim coaching for Benji, to be quite honest, was pretty much how you'd call it. Um so, yeah, that's finished and uh, so I'm sort of sitting around um, every day is a Sunday, Paul, you know, you can get up when you want. <laughs> it reminds me of COVID again, uh, that dreaded thing, where uh, when we were in England it shut the football down, to be quite honest, and uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, getting a bit lazy. So, yeah, I've been training and doing a bit extra, mate, yeah. I can't imagine. We're going to go through the long arc of your career, Tim. Laziness isn't a word mm. that comes to mind. But anyway, let's uh, let's go through the story. And Tim, if I could, you're, you've you've been in the game your whole life. You've coached against the greats, the greatest that rugby league in Australia has ever known. And you've also met so many other great coaches from sports, and not just in Australia, UK and Europe and everywhere else. But if I could start mm. with just a simple question to get us going. What is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, you're talking about assistant coaches, for instance, or uh, junior coaches, uh, as opposed to maybe a professional coach. You know, like I've come from the semi-professional uh, era and through 97, um, it went full-time and professional in, in Australia with NRL. Um, so I've seen, you know, the two days a week, three days a week training times and the four on, you know, every day, basically. Um, I think to be successful, there's a number of things, you know, you've got to be a good manager of people when it's all said and done, whether it's a CEO of any firm, 
it's it's managing your people. Um, in our our sport, of course, it's a team sport. There's 13 start and another four are used from the bench. But in saying that, it's a, a team sport, but it's a team sport is full of individuals. And a lot of coaches fail to ad- address that. They are coaching as a team. They attack them as a team. Um, you know, for instance, I'll give you a quick one. You know, you, you, you're getting beat. Uh, four of the players are really having a go. They're bleeding from the nose and and the, and the jaw and all the other things. And the coach gets at half time and gives them all a spray. Yeah, that the four players, particularly if they're the veteran players, you know, the 29 year olds, um, don't appreciate that sort of thing. So it, it is very difficult to understand just when you, when you need to, um, deal with them as a team and when you need to deal with them as individuals. Yeah. So that's one thing. I think also it's the time frame. It's certainly full on. It's a 24 seven job, full time football, uh, professional football. And, um, you're dealing with, as opposed to your assistant coaches, you're dealing with the politics of the game. You're dealing with the politics within your club, outside your club, the media, social media, uh, you know, sponsors, and yeah, and it's an endless, you know, you know, I've got to do something there. I've got to go to this function. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And it is a, it's something you've got to do. It's an obligation you do. Most senior coaches get well paid. And so it's not just a matter of turning up game day, training and going on game day to um, to get it done. It's a, it's a club thing and you've got to deal with lots of different uh, people. On top of that, you've got to set an environment. I think the environment that the senior coach sets is so important. For instance, I believe you want the players to come to want to be at training, if you know what I mean. Uh, if you're going to, if you don't, uh, set the system up in a way that you know they're they're, they're busting to be there early and and they leave late. That's the type of person you want, and that's the type of system you have to have inside your club. Tim, you talked there about being good at managing people. It's the first thing you said, actually. Mm. Now, if I've got my research right, you started taking on leadership roles way back in secondary school, and I'm wondering. Who got you started back then? Who was helping you develop this man management skill back then? I suppose I, I was uh, born Catholic, um, Catholic school, so I was always um, Christian brothers or Morris brothers. Um, their discipline was strong. Um, you know, in fact, so strong you cop the uh, you cop the strap if you did the wrong thing in those days, uh, but. Yeah, you know, I was um, for what, whatever it is, I don't know. I was popular with with the with the the, the schoolmates, and I, I seemed to always be a um, uh, a prefect. You know, as in uh, school prink, and then I was end up um, school captain at St Gregory's in my last year of school. But I've always seemed to be popular in that regard. Whether it was because I played football and I was captain of the team regularly. Or something like that. I don't know, but um, the, the the brothers, Morris brothers and Christian brothers, had a lot to do with it. Particularly my two years at St Gregory's, uh, the Morris brothers there were very, and I was at the age then of you know seventeen, eighteen, that type of age. Um, my father had passed away, my grandfather had passed away, so not many men in my life. Uh, but they were. I was at boarding school for two years, and um, you know, did a, had a lot of help from from the brothers. 
Um, as I said, I was school principal there in 68. God, how far how long ago was that? Um, and uh, the um, and that helps, you know. I had to get up and make speeches. I had to meet people from the, you know, dignitaries that came to the school and I was the, you know, I, I was representing the students. So that's maybe that had something to do with it, I suppose. Yeah, and I enjoy, you know, players who are captains generally. My the thirteen World Cup side I took had a heap of captains in it, you know, captains of their respective sides. And uh generally there's a there's a personality with a captain, you know, one way or another. And um and so not that I'd pick them just to be because they're a captain, but you'd be surprised how many captains play for Australia, for instance, or play for New South Wales and Queensland, that type of thing, yeah. I was also went to a, a brother's school that was uh, marked by discipline, but your style's not – doesn't seem to be focused on that, Tim. It's interesting that these people shaped you early, but you're, it seems to be very calm and focused on the team and its strengths, not necessarily – you know, discipline and hard rigor, which we which we often hear about oh, when we talk to yeah, regular coaches. Yeah, you know, I think people people don't know as much about me as I think they do. Um, I've had my little rants, and I've certainly, but it's not something that's a constant day in and day out. My personality is to work with the individual and try to get you know, you, know, you reason with them, you help them, and you show interest in them. You generally get a result. Now the difference is though, is you got you, you know I use a it's not mine I, I got it from a um, an American coach I can't I can't recall exactly where it was that long ago, but it was be consistent with treating everybody differently. Now um, that is a twenty nine year old veteran and a nineteen year old rookie are, are two different uh, people. And so if they're both playing in the same team, you know, you've got to, you've got to treat them differently, but be fair. Um, so it's a matter of working. I, I prefer to work on that system. Then again, you know, sometimes the so-called disciplinarians, if, if they do the wrong thing as a 29 year old veteran or a 19 year old kid, they still get disciplined, but it's a different discipline. You know, um, I expect more from the veteran. I'd give the kid a second chance. Um, Depending on what it is, it's a third or fourth chance. Even you know, sometimes it's just not that that black and white. That you know, make another mistake and you're gone from the team or you're gone from the club. But a, a veteran would get could play poorly for a couple of games and still make the team, whereas a 19 year old's not going to. You know that type of thing. So it is a uh, there's variation to your disciplines and how you handle it. But um, I find yeah, you've got to assess exactly what makes the athlete kick. Uh, tick, sorry, um, whether it's, uh, you know, an arm around the shoulder or a kick up the tail, uh, a reminder about this, that, and the other thing. You've just got to be switched on. You've got to know your player, know your people. And that that's just not your players. That's your coaching staff. That's your general staff. That's the office staff. That's the CEO. You've got to know how to handle them as well. So it's a matter of that's how I operate. Um they, they train hard, but they, they enjoy training because I like to put a football in their hand to train. Uh, you know, I, I grew up doing road runs through the Penrith Mountains and getting flogged uh, and having coaches say, oh, we'll give them the ball in January and make them hungry for it, you know, so we didn't have a football in our hand. 
So, you know, our first few games, obviously, you, you know, your skill levels were down. So, you know, those sort of things, because I had 13 coaches in the uh, – sorry, eight co- first-grade coaches in the 13 years I played with Penrith, eight. So I uh, – whether I learned something from everyone, but I certainly learned a lot about the fact that they, you don't last long um, if you're not – if you've not set the system up properly, if you don't deal with your players properly – uh, if you don't treat them with the respect they're due, particularly, again, the 100, 200-game player versus a 19-year-old rookie. Uh, so those sorts of things are, um, you know, where I, where I come from, you know. You've, as you said, you started out in Penrith. You had a great career out there. Then you coached them. You took them to their first finals. You took Canberra and West mm. to their first premiership. I mean, it's just been a long and storied career, Tim, and I'm, Wondering what insight this has given you about helping teams step up and realise their potential. To start with, yeah, one of the things as a coach uh, or a manager, you've got to have is good recruitment policy and uh, have a have a good eye for that type of thing. I think the best coaches are good recruiters, and uh, you started me off with what makes a you know a uh, a good coach. Um, because really, as Jack Gibson, one of the famous coaches, that uh, you you say that I um, that we're in the game, and certainly I coached against him. I had the privilege of coaching against him just at the back end of his career. Um, was you know the players have something to do with it? A nice simple statement he used to make when they won premierships, or and it's true. You you you've, you've got to develop the right group. Um, they might not all be representative players, but they they have to. Suit your style. My, my style is obviously an attacking style. I, the rule book says score more points in the opposition. Uh, and I take that literally and look for an offensive game. And in, in fact, a good offense will beat and a well organized defense any day, any day. The coaches who say, oh, it's all about defense with respect. Uh, you know, that's their philosophy. That's not mine. Um, we, you've still got to be able to tackle, right? But it's not about if you're going to go out there and say, well, we'll just defend ourselves, defend every week and not score enough points. You're not going to win. Most teams will score points at you. You've got to be able to score more than them. That in turn is a defense, if you want to, if you follow what I'm saying. Mm. But, um, not that you don't do anything about it, but the individual needs to be able to tackle and uh, be physically fit and strong and so on and so on. So, you know, I'm getting off the track a little bit, but, uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, your philosophies and your recruitment and so on and so on are very important. For those first, for instance, the Penrith one, I think was as good a as good a coaching as I've ever done. And and for me personally, because of where we finished through the seventies um, and early eighties when I played, uh, we never made a semi final. Mind you, it was top five, but we never made a semi final. So to make a semi final in eighty five was to me as good a thing as I've coached. And um uh and that can that includes the grand finals and World Cup and all that sort of stuff that I won. Tim, the words that come up a lot when people talk about your coaching style are innovation, experimentation, just trying mm. new things. It's mm. it seems to be a trademark of, of what you do. You say it's an offensive style, but you're also innovating. Now yes. people that innovate often get a lot of feedback and not all of it's good. Mm. I'm wondering how you've learned to deal with 
the more conservative stakeholders in the game as you've gone about changing the game? Mm. Well, generally as first grade coach, you get you get a fair amount of what you want. You know, if you want a piece of equipment or you need to take them on a camp or you need to do, um, you know, I was I was pushing for training centres way back when I was in the at the Raiders. We looked at some schools um, that had closed down in the ACT, and we were going to do that. They eventually their first their first um, uh, what would you call it? Um, yeah, their first um, training centre was um, they put it up on a um, on a piece of land that was you know, tech college allowed them to put a, a building up and use their field, you know. So I'd seen that in America and so on. So getting a professional setup was what I was looking for right back in those days. Um, and the club was prepared to help in big time. So I haven't had much trouble or pushback from that type of thing. But um, part of being, you know, uh, different or innovative or whatever you want to call it is to is to spark the players. You know, they train hard. Um, in the old days, they had to they were training three days, playing on the fourth day of a seven-day week and then working, you know. So it was pretty hard on them to, to turn up and then have a full day's work, turn up the training and then say, right, now we're going to just run, you know, 2K runs, 5K runs, road runs, uh, you know, we're going to flog the hell out of you. Um, so and not put a football in their hand, which is what they play for. You know, um, the football is the most, the best thing you can do as a coach, whether it's a soccer ball, a football, a baseball, or whatever, is to get them out there practicing. You know, and train training while you practice is the best thing these days. Of course, with all the GPS they can put on them, you don't have to have too many times. Uh, you know, with a stopwatch anymore, um, you can uh, you can pick up what they're what their speed is and everything, you know, basically on uh, on the vest they wear these days. So, but again, it needs to be, the whole thing needs to be, I want to be there, you know, and if players are coming in late or they're straggling or they're that type of thing, obviously the environment isn't right and you've got to, you've got to work hard to make sure that it is. Um, so as well as challenging, most athletes uh, are, are really competitive, you know, that that drives them into athletics or football or whatever sport. So the, the training has to be competitive as well. And rewards for rewards for wins and other things I always found work really well because the one thing they wanted to do if you played the left edge against your right edge in defense and offense, they really competed hard. So um as much as possible, you know, I, I, I use that type of technique. Um, a lot of coaches at those same days in those days were just using stopwatches to run hundreds and, tw- and you know, doing 20 hundreds and, and doing all these sorts of things. Um, although the conditioners were involved in that as well, I was lucky to have some very good people um, who said to me, um, yeah, we should be doing more with this and more with that. And, of course, my I bought we – we, whatever we do, we do with a ball in the hand. 90% of it has to be with a football in their hands. Um, the fundamental thing about winning a game of, or doing anything is to be able to control the football. And if you can't pass and you can't, you know, your kickers can't kick and your catchers can't catch because they're not doing anything 
with a ball uh, on a regular basis. They do these days, but in the old days when it was three days a week, it was, you know, Tuesday they flogged you, uh, Thursday you did some ball work, and Saturday you did a captain's run and went for a beer before you played on Sunday. So it's changed quite significantly <laughs> from the there. The world but, has changed. Um, it sure has, yeah. But as far as, as far as, as I say, you know, you're, yeah, the discipline type of thing. There are coaches who do a lot of jumping and are very active in the box. And you, you think a lot of people think that's great. They're, they're passionate and so on. But, um, uh, God love them. Most of them, uh, they need someone in the box for them to translate what they're saying down to the sideline to pass take it onto the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to use any examples there, but, uh, I know it for a fact. So it is. It is everyone's different. You mean again, you coach your personality. Um, and uh, if you're an intense person and you're an intense player or athlete, you'll be intense if you're a coach. Because if you're not, you're, you're not true to your spirit, you know. So, but it's how you control that, you know, how you control it. Tim, how much of your communication, if, if, you, if you look at an average week and you divide it up on a pie chart, how much of it's individual with the players versus speaking to collectives of people, groups? Depends. Again, pre-season, uh, it's a lot more, you spend a lot more time with them um, individually and as groups because you're explaining a, a new season starting, you've got fresh players coming in. You've got, if you're new to the club, for instance, even, you know, you've got a lot of things to do. The language is very important, the, 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 what they call their plays and, and so on and so on. So all of that has to be practiced. You've got to introduce the new players, um, and, uh, that come generally to your club every year or grow up through your system coming through the juniors. Um, and so, yeah, pre season's different to, uh, during season and, of course, uh, then post at the back of the season, if you're in the big games, you're doing a lot more with individuals again. Um, so I, I don't know if I could put a, as you say, a, uh, a pie on it, you know, what percentage it would be. All I know is that I would deal with them more individually in pre-season and just towards the back end of the season if you're chasing semifinals and so on. There's a lot of work to be done in respect to keeping them focused and and not panicking and so on and so on. Um, And then, of course, if you make the finals, there's a hell of a lot of – that changes things as well. That's a a different scenario again. But one thing's for sure, I do do a lot of one-on-ones with players. I like to to hear their individual input into what happened during the game and – and also, I like to give them my input as well. But I'm interested to hear what, what they think about the game. Because during the game, you can discuss things with the key people, your spine, as they call it, you know, your key people that are running the game. But the guy out on the wing or the guy, you know, in the centres or in the middle of the scrum, he's got an opinion as well. And it's interesting to get it because um, sometimes you get a feeling of, you know, what happened here, we didn't do this, we didn't do that, and so on and so on. And it's not always who you thought or what you thought when you really talk to people or, and again, when you look at your video because coaches do interviews straight after a straight after a game. And the league do that deliberately, as do the media, because they want the emotion that comes with just after the game, you know. And, uh, and of course, that's where coaches get fined. Ask Rick. <laughs> He's, you know, when it gets... Um, 
when he gets you know fired up. But then sometimes then you go home and watch the video and you think, oh hell, you know, um, hmm, I was quite something wrong there. Yeah, I did the wrong thing there, or yeah. or whatever. You know, it doesn't always compute that the two things come together nicely. So uh, sometimes you're paying fines, other times you get an apology, uh, and sometimes you have to give an apology. So, but um, but the, the, it is emotional. It's yeah, professional sport, and it is um, win or be sacked. And we've all, you know, they talk about coaches are, you know, are waiting to be sacked. You know, that's basically when you start coaching. It's a matter of how long before you're sacked. And we've all had a, a, a level of that, even the best, um, Wayne Bennett and so on. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not a good coach. It just means sometimes you're a, um, a round peg in a square hole. You don't fit with the organisation and uh, you need to find – around hole to uh to join yeah can i pick up on emotions and intensity tim you, you another word that comes up is intensity you people talk about you being intense but they also reference it when mm. it comes to the way you prepare people the train and the way you focus on performance i mm. you've had such a long journey and time in the game i'm wondering you you must have found a way to switch this intensity on and off or I imagine you just would have burnt out is there anything that you've learned that you think others could fold into their own toolkit to get better at switching that intensity on and off? Yeah, it is interesting that um, as a person yourself, you're dealing, if you're coaching or you're playing, you're, you're playing, you're starting at you know, a teenager, you, generally between there and your retirement, you get married and you have children. Uh, the kids do that and coaches are the same. You know, your family life is... It's tough on your family, there's no doubt, if you're full on. Um, and so, you know, the priorities are, it's like there's a job and there's a profession. You know, professions are 24-7, you know, you're thinking about it. You're not always working, but you're thinking about it. The players can go home, look at their video and forget it and then train and not worry about it. Uh, coaches are forever thinking about it from the day, from right from the end of the, the last whistle, the, the final whistle on the day. You've got three injuries. You've got all these sorts of things. You've got uh, poor players that you think have played poorly and you've warned them, so you've probably got to change a couple of players. Uh, I generally try not to uh, drop a player without giving him a warning, particularly a senior player. A 19-year-old might be in for the week and out uh, and out straight away because the other player comes back in and you've got to deal with that. But, yeah, it is it is constantly your head's in it. Even if your your legs aren't, you're not running around with them and doing you know those sorts of things. But to say, I think what is it, forty years or something since I started professionally mm-hmm. coaching um, this year, and uh, it, it, yeah, I look back and think, where's that time gone? You know, because it, when you're flat out, time goes fast. I used to count the calendar by the season. You know, round five, yeah, with <laughs> round ten, but. Um, Having an interest like having, um, uh, you know, some some coaches play golf, some do this, some yeah, you know, a lot of them get out just to get out. And I, I've worked, I use the gym a bit, um, and um, I haven't got a lot of interest. The shoulder doesn't let me hit a golf ball anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, you try to switch off. It's not easy. It's not easy, and people will tell you, Sheen's talks football. Uh, under the water, you know, and um, and you're getting that gist now. You know, this interview is <laughs> going to go longer than you think. But um, but it is one of those things that um, 
you know, it's cost me in my personal life a bit. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are consequences, you know, for the, for the game, but the game's been good to me and, you know, I've had um, plenty of ups and plenty of downs, you know, but uh, over a period of time, it was the thing that I, you know, as I say, you know, you don't work a day in your life if you're doing something you enjoy. And I think that's, I didn't, I, I didn't see getting up at five to go to work and coming home at nine at night as, as, as work. It was just enjoyment. I enjoyed doing what I had to do. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Can I ask you, Tim, I don't want to ask you about the downs. I, there's been enough written about the whole incident recently with uh, with the disgraceful decision that yeah. West's made. I don't, I don't think we need to go into it. I think that there's been enough written. No, no, no. No, I don't want to but, talk about it. But one of the things, you know, you always asked your players, and this has been consistent through your career, to develop the ability to play at least two positions. Now, in a world where we're increasingly being pushed into specialisation, we're getting smaller and smaller mm. pigeonholes. Why was mm. more generalisation important to you? Because in a long season, unless you've got, and particularly under salary cap, you've got limited access to players uh, of experience. In the old days, there's no salary cap. You could buy a player halfway through the year and that's not a, a problem as long as the club could afford it. So you needed versatility from the point of view of um, uh, an injury during a game. You know, you carry four interchange, but in days gone by, it used to be two and various other various versions of it, unlimited when Super League first kicked off. Um, so you, you need to be able to, um, in an instance, say, we'll move so-and-so to, to that, that position and, and we'll put so-and-so onto something else. So, you know, you've got to train them in sometimes those positions as well. You know, you've got a, for instance, you know, uh, Benji Marshall started as a as a centre. Uh, if I'd had him, if I didn't have Brett Hodgson, I probably would have played him fullback. I didn't have a five eight, so we ended up at five eight, which is where he played at school. But he's played he's played other positions um, during the game because he is an athlete. Robbie Farrow did the same. Uh, Ricky Shield was a specialist half. Laurie Daly, they played five eight centre, uh, lock forward and fullback. Um, in the early days until he settled down as a 5'8". So, you know, on their way through, for instance, you know, players developing the skills to be a first grader rather than a schoolboy, you know, sometimes you've got to, you know, take a back seat and play just to get a game in any position. So 
I know at school I was I was always a five eight centre, um, and I went to grade. I was big enough, but I was I was big for a five eight, but I was too slow for five, for five eight in first grade. So the coach said, "You go into the forwards, you're big enough, and you'll be." And my, the bit of speed that I did have and skill from being a five eight helped me be a forward. You know, so I learned at early days that you know, and I saw it regularly. Players come in as a a 19-year-old centre and end up uh, a 29-year-old back rower or front rower. Ask Jason Croker. <laughs> Jason went from from wing to centre to five eight to lock forward to second row to front row. He did. He went all that way through. Not because he was getting lazy and fat. It's because as he got older, he slowed a bit. But he's he's a tough kid and he just played anywhere you wanted him to play. Uh, the dreaded, uh, as they call it in our game, utility player who plays in the 14 jumper regularly. You know, he can play three or four positions. He can play halfback, five, eight, and hooker if you needed to be. He'd play lock forward. I played Cameron Smith lock forward during games at times and brought, in, brought on a fresh hooker. Um, the Those sorts of things are just, you know, it'd be lovely to say 13 will start. Those 13 will stay in those positions. And and so on. The four on the bench have to cover thirteen positions to start with. And although the positions are cut down, I mean they've got two centers, but you've got a left and a right and two second rowers, two wingers, two front rowers, I know. But um even playing left and right is is a challenge for some players who carry a ball specifically in the right hand, um, can struggle sometimes playing on the left side of the field. You know, because they're carrying with the ball mm. in in the area where the impact zone. So, so even the four players that are that you've got to balance those four players have got to be able to play somewhere in the thirteen positions. And so, having them being able to play two or three positions and understanding that that's their role, it's a seventeen man game these days. Um, but the the interchange guy, or you get a an injury during the game, or you get a send off, or you get a sin bin, you've got to be able to adjust fairly quickly. So. They've got to be. They've got to know how to play. Uh, I don't teach them all how to kick or anything, yeah. You know, but Glenn Lazarus could kick a ball. Daryl Broman uh, for Penrith. Uh, you know, they just because they were pigeonholed into a position didn't mean they didn't have skill levels. Um, Glenn Lazarus came from the second row, and I I put him in the front row because of an injury, a serious injury to Brent Todd. Um, which was a year injury. So Glenn started playing front row for the year and, and ended up probably the best front row, one of them anyway, just to have played the game, certainly on his results. Um, you know, um, so yeah, that's, that's basically why the, and I think most coaches have it in their heads, you know, oh, he can, he could play center if he had to, uh, you know, uh, or you can play second row, you know. They're out there on the edge side by side anyway these days, you know. The game's changed dramatically from the two centres playing together and and that type of thing, uh, which was the rugby union style in us as we, we came. And Warren Ryan, of course, um, dramatically changed the game into left and right. And that uh, that that was a made – I give him all the credit for that. Tim, there's this – Term in the USA, it's not used so much actually in Australia or Europe. It's called a coaching tree. And they use it to describe, you know, people that have played under you as players and have gone on to coach themselves. Now, what's interesting about your tree is there are four other men who have gone on to become premiership coaches. 
Now, what sort of, and of course, there's one who's tragically passed away. But what I wanted to ask you was, you've had some success at being a leader yourself, but also nurturing other people to go on and lead. And I'm wondering if you've identified anything that's important when it comes to developing future talent to lead. Yeah, generally, Paul, they'll come from uh, their intelligent players. They'll come from around your ruck area, you know, uh, the spine, the hooker, the halfbacks, the fullback, uh, you know, centres. You know, Mal, for instance, very played centre all his career, although I did see him play back row once uh, on a tour uh, under uh, old Don Ferner, and uh, he didn't like it. But um, overall, though, coaches have come from systems where they have to think about the game while they're playing it. You know, they've, you know, they're the smarter players. But but to say you can pick them, no, I could never, I could never pick uh, Laurie Daly as, as a coach, let alone a media guy. Or Rick, uh, Rick said to me once, I don't know. I said, do you want to coach? He said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do until I do it. You know, he was a very off-the-cuff player. Des Hassel was exactly the same. I played with Des. He's a Penrith junior. Um, even though he hates me saying that because I'm I'm so old, he says, you stay. <laughs> but uh, my last year was his first year in grade. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, it does it just you, – you never know. I mean, Craig Bellamy is a classic. Um, I gave Craig his first – Job as the under uh, under twenty threes coach or under twenty ones, I can't remember now, uh, but it was a the third grade side, and um, Craig um, Craig I thought would go into conditioning and um, you know uh, that type of that side of the game uh, performance in that regard because he was very very fit and um, and pushed himself to the limits and so on and and was interested. You know, and, that, and a great bloke, you know, uh, outside of when he's intense, he's, he's a terrific bloke. You know, and that's, that's his, that's his trade off for the intensity. I think the players still love him, but, um, and that helps, of course, when you get results, doesn't it? You know, you, you can, it, um, you justify anything you can do then once you've got the experience and the results. But, um, no, I, I, I yeah, you know, I wouldn't have picked Laurie Daly, as I said, as a media guy, or Greg Alexander as a media guy. They were young idiots who run around young. You can't put it, and you shouldn't put try to put a thirty year old head on a nineteen year old kid. Um, that's again another thing I've learned. You know, you by treating them differently, you know they're going to make mistakes. You know that they're young. Um, so, yeah, there's. Uh, but to say some, you know, sometimes you can see it. Other times. Um, a young kid at West, so I won't name him, but he was, didn't play a lot of first grade, but he was as captain of the lower grades, very smart kid, and I thought this kid will be a good coach. We might even make a good referee because the referees were looking for um, uh, uh, young young players who weren't quite going to make it and um, and went around the clubs asking, you know, would, would there be any – and they were going to become apprentices, apprentice referees, you know. This is prior, just prior to the two referee system we had for a while. And then, of course, the two referee system, a lot of the younger blokes got game time because they were part of the second referee on the game. Anyway, uh, I put it to him about being a referee. He said, no way in the world because he, he didn't want to, he thought the referees were the worst thing ever, but he was, 
I'd seen him turn referees inside out on the field with rule, knowing the rules and all the other things that, um, which is why I loved him. But, but he, he knocked back $90,000 a year to be an apprentice referee. And you know, I think he regrets it these days, but, um, uh, but so you can't always pick who's going to jump out of the air and, and be a, a coach. Um, and yeah, let him be a successful coach. So a lot of, a lot of players become assistant coaches, no doubt. Uh, not all of them go on to be first grade coaches, let alone great first grade coaches who win premierships. And although, you know, you, you can sometimes fall into a group if you're lucky. When you coach, you, you, when you leave a club, you leave a legacy. And when you go to a club, you gain a legacy from that previous administration. There's always some good and bad in that, uh, both ways. And so it's, you know, being able to learn to be able to then turn, take the good and, and improve it. And, uh, not everyone can do that. Every now and then you get a, a champion team that, as I was lucky enough with Canberra, uh, although we had two champion teams there, we had the 87, 88 group, 89, 90, 91, lost them to salary cap. And then we reinvented the 94 side, uh, and that, yeah, you know, 93, we should have won it or could have won it, except for um, uh, my, my captain who wouldn't come off the field. Uh, that's Rick again. Uh, yeah. I can say these things because I know, <laughs> I know he'll take it. He'll take it with a grin. It was a lesson well learned. He broke his end up. I was going to move him in a Parramatta game about three days from the end of the season. We were, we were really demolishing sides. We were leading Parramatta by 60 points. And uh, at home, I said, I'll oh, give Ricky a break. Anyway, the trainer went out and you give the trainer a, a godful. I'm not coming off a, a minute later. He fractured, badly fractured and broke his leg, his ankle. So he missed the semis and we went straight in and straight out. So I every now and then remind him about that. So, um, as, as, uh, I think it, it was a very good experience from the point of view of, um, the player tells him he's staying on the field, not coming off when he wants to take you off. Ricky has something to say about it. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, those sorts of experiences, you, you just don't know, you know. Like Rick went, he left the club after I did and ended up at Canterbury and, and then Roosters give him a, a junior start in coaching and away he went, mm-hmm. you know. So he's done a great job. So um, Laurie, representative coaching, Mal, representative coaching, you know, that's their things that, you know, they all had the intelligence to the game. That's the first thing I, that you'd say. Um, if you're not a smart player, you're not going to be a smart coach, you know. But um, and in saying that, I'm not having to go at every player. You know, you know, there's certain amounts of players who you play in a position where they've got their job to do, and that's it. They don't mind. Uh, you know, it's an important part. Every every part of the game is important. But some people have to run the game. They have to see the game in their head. You know, Peter Sterling, for instance, I always remember the comment he made when asked about you know how do you read the game. He said, "Take your eyes off the play the ball. You know, and actually have a look at the game. You know." So little things like that um, are players that, you know, uh, you're going to say, well, a you know, percentage of them may end up coaching. You know? And Craig went to Craig went on to to do performance at with the uh, with uh, Wayne Bennett at Broncos, and then gradually started to, you know, uh, throw in a few ideas and so on and so on, and ended up Wayne ended up. Uh, Getting a coaching gig when Wayne was away on rep footy or something, and uh, he taught the first grade side, and um, 
played West, I think it was, at Campbelltown, had a win. They called them the Bronco Babies or Baby Broncos or something. It was, that's right. And Craig, Craig then just went you know, further and further up the ladder with the Broncos with, with uh, Wayne and had to leave, obviously, to, um, to get a job. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, Wes Tigers uh, interviewed him and he knocked him back and went on to Melbourne, which was fortunate for him. And fortunately for me, I got the job after him. So after cool. coaching him at, uh, at Raiders, yeah. There's a couple of names in there which I'll be chasing down, listeners, over the next year or so. <laughs> I don't know. Craig Bellamy will go on to be a, a legend of the game. Mel Meninga, Warren Ryan. I mean, some of the names yeah. are just just legends. Yeah. But I'd like to stick with you, if we can, Mr. Sheens, because uh, we're not finished yeah. yet. I want to go back <laughs> in time. Your, yeah. um, your great uncle played the first ever game for Balmain. I, when, I, mm. when I found that mm. stat, I thought that was – Quite amazing because one hundred years later, you're coaching the team. Mm. It's it's quite amazing, and you know the the great thing mm. about rugby league is this: it's just such a game of belonging and identity. And I and I wanted to want ask you what you've what you've learned about creating this sense of connection, motivation, and identity in a group, which is often just full of professionals moving from one club to another. Mm, yeah, Ricky's very big on this too. Um, I'm yeah, actually going down to yeah. to say hello to him um, and do some things for the club uh, uh, next week. Actually, um, yeah, I think he understood. He, he made a comment which uh, about the Raiders of his era, about how close they were as players, how they did everything together, um, trained hard, competed hard. Um, drank hard, but you know had a, a bond. The fact that they were successful because they were talented obviously helped that too. Um, but uh, because nothing, nothing better than winning to bring a group of players together. You know, you you have a bad season. Uh, you know, uh, it does. It is. It can fracture you somewhat. You know, because you've got to make some big decisions on who stays, who doesn't. Whereas a, a really good premiership. Standard side or a top four standard side, and I say top four, not top eight. Top four is where you need to be if you're if you're really going to be a chance to win a, a competition, and um, and uh, and a winning team in that regard, the momentum tends to keep you going. There's lots of things that that help you as a coach. Um, <clears throat> certainly, if you're coaching down the other end of the scale, it's tough. Yeah. I first my first gig was Penrith in 1984, and he made me professional. I, I'd be if I was probably one of the first, if not the first, professional coach in rugby league in Australia. Although Jack Gibson was independently wealthy, so I, I, he didn't work out. <laughs> but but you know what I mean. Like most of guys were school teachers, and yeah, but I mean I've got I've got a bust of his head um, <laughs> that I bought at an auction. Weighs a ton. Uh, I used to put my cap on top of it. So he was really good to me, Jack, uh, uh, even when he was coaching against me. Um, the back end, as I said, back end of his career. But the, um, yeah, the situation of, you know, the, the morale and the general feeling, not just in a team, it has to be in your club as well. It has to be your people. You know, I, I, I remember the Tigers, for instance. Um, I was living at Penrith when I first came down from Townsville. Uh, I was getting up at four to get to work and beat the traffic. 
which comes down from the mountains there, you know, and going to Sydney. And there'd be someone there at training, someone there at the club before me, the conditioner or – and even the CEO. He came from Campbelltown, uh, Stephen Noyce. So it was people there before you got there and people there after you got there. There was no one in a hurry to leave at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when the players finished. The players would do extras or they'd, they'd, you know, they'd hang together, they'd go and have a coffee together. And creating – and I encourage that too. I, I'm not taking credit for it, but as soon as I smelt it, I encouraged it. Um, you know, so um, it's that type of people you need. You know, uh, there's three things. Three things you've got to be you're looking for. You know, uh, one is um, public perception. Um, you know what they think of your club and your team. Two is um, public perception. Your opposition and little groups over here talking about little groups over there. They're the three things uh, you've got to work on all the time. What they think of your club, what they think of your team. Uh, so you've got to do promos. You've got to do all sorts of things outside just playing football. Um, you've got to you know, sell your club. Your opposition is obvious, right? This is in any business I'm talking about, yeah. let alone sport. Yeah. When you think about it, it applies to all businesses. So – You've got your opposition. That's a natural. We're always trying to improve ourselves to be better than them. And then you've got little groups talking about little groups. And what happens there, that splits your club. You know, you get that little politic thing happening. That doesn't mean, you know, having a lunch there and having a bit of lunch here. I'm generally talking about there are inside your organisation, there are groups, and they're talking about other groups inside the organisation. That's that's the thing that will drag your club down and drag your morale down. So you've got to... You've got to do something about that every day. We obviously do something about the um, opposition every day. We come to training to prepare and beat them. The other one is um, public perception these days, particularly with your websites and your uh, – yeah, you can control the narrative, not let the media do it. You can control them and you've got a website and you get the news first. So, you, you, you know, you, you, push, the, you push the narrative and, and – uh, and you and you, you you talk to people who are who've got who've got angst with you, you know, whether it's a sponsor or a, or this that or the other thing. Um, you go to fan engagement days as a coach, and you talk. Yeah, you know? they they generally get it wrong. You'd be surprised how many times they they get it wrong. Um, and uh, you know, the, oh, we thought this, and oh, we thought that, you know. And then of course, um, you know, making sure that everybody inside the organisation. Is is when I say happy with one another, you can always you've always got competition inside. But I won't have I won't have um, groups shooting other groups down. Yeah, that's that's a major problem. Tim, if I could take you back, I've got the time machine downstairs. I'll dust it off. If I could take you back <laughs> and introduce you to that that young man who was studying law, right? He was studying law and he was thinking yeah, about I- which path to take in life. Knowing, mm. knowing what you know now, what would you say to him? Part of me would say, why didn't you finish your law degree? There are days like that. But really, no, Paul, I think given the experience I've had and, and uh, the game's been really good to me, um, I've had my rough moments, as I say, but overall the game's been really good to me. Um, and... Yeah, Roy Simmons said it 
you know, he had the dement- he's got dementia. He will not blame the game for dementia. And he would hit you over the ear if you tried to say that to him, you know. He knew what he was doing and the game was good to him and has been and still continues to be good to him. So it is something that, as I said earlier, you know, I haven't worked a day in my life because I, I've been involved with footy and I've enjoyed every moment of it. And the experience that comes with your downs as well prepares you for those things. And so, you know, you understand it's experience. It's, it's the 29-year-old veteran yeah, you know, as you get older, as a coach, you know you know what to expect and and how to how to manage it if you can. Sometimes it's out of your hands. You know, referee, three things, or well, two things anyway: injury, injury, and uh, referees, <laughs> as in ruled ruled interpretations, are the two things you've got very little, if no, say in, and they're the two things that can really destroy you. You lose key players during the year; um, you can't replace them. And people think you should be able to, but it's, you know, excuse the expression, but it's bullshit. You can't. You know, we have, you haven't got a roster in salary cap. Some clubs have, but you haven't got a, a, a key halfback to replace another key halfback, you know, and that type of thing. You know, even even uh, some of the more stronger clubs will tell you that, you know, Roosters have had trouble over a few years, over halfback, you know, since Cooper, um, injuries to their, to their key people. Um, yeah, you lose your fullback like I lost Tedesco in 2012 in the very first game. Um, he did a cruciate ligament lasting for the year. I'd still be coaching West Tigers, um, if Teddy continued to play. Um, and I say that, I genuinely say that. And I think it was proven, you know, um, when, as he continued to play for the Tigers, uh, for that short period of time after that and then uh, grabbed by the Roosters. So, you know, key players, um, key, key players and, uh, and a, and a poor decision or a bounce of the ball. That's probably the third one. That shaped ball never bounces true. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's one of those things that, um, yeah, you've got certain things in your set. You tend to learn and live with that, but, you know, some never get over the, you know, the referee thing. Um, and understandably because referees going full time, and got video reviews now and so on and so on, which is why it all came in, you know, to decide was it a try or not a try, video refereeing, which has expanded out to, you know, giving the captains a say and so on. It's been great. It's a great, you know, system, but it's still human nature and human error and human inter- interpretation, you know. So um, they're going to get it wrong at times. Um, unfortunately, if it happens to hurt you, a key one, you know, it comes down hard on referees, so uh, I feel for them. Uh, I'd never want to be one, but uh, I feel for them. Uh, in and uh, and truly, you know, I've seen it from the days when, as I say, they were part time, right through to being fully professional, well paid officials now. With you know, the amount of tech they've got to cover themselves is brilliant, you know. But even then, with them, they get them wrong sometimes. You know, the interpretations and so on. So. But um, sometimes, well, obviously that keeps the media in in business. So uh, without without controversy in our game, they'd have nothing to write about. It's all on TV. In the old days, there's only a certain amount of games on TV, so you had to go to the game to see your game, and the media had to go and report the game. You know, oh, he scored a good try, and just, they don't do that anymore. Uh, everyone can stay at home and watch it on on flat screen TVs. Better get a better view than you do at the ground. 
So, yeah, it's changed a lot, but put the pressure on a lot of people, players, referees. Um, yeah, they can look up your nose uh, with those uh, cameras these days. And um, so, yeah, you've, you're under the spotlight. So there's, there's a whole heap of things that um, that uh, have changed. And, but, and sometimes that's why I'd say, why did I become a solicitor? I was actually doing more as an article clerk uh, working – in Penrith and uh, and playing at the same, started playing at the same time, so around just after I got out of school. Mm. Well, look, uh, Tim, I want to finish with one last question, if I could. And we're back to Ricky Stewart, of course. We Ricky kindly oh, introduced me to you, and yeah. he, Ricky, of course, for those listening, was a was a, was a, one of the great coaches we interviewed uh, a year or so back. But Ricky had this interesting quote, Tim. He said, "The greatest compliment for a coach is to have others copy you, and a lot copied." Tim, but what he doesn't say is exactly what they copied. So I wanted to just to finish, Tim, by asking you, in those quite small moments when you do reflect, what is it that you hope that these other people have copied from you in a positive way? I think um, I'd like to think anyway, although I've been criticised for it sometimes and uh is I like to play an open style of game, you know, from the point of view of, uh, and I recruit players accordingly. But that all started with just common sense. If you haven't got a massive forward pack and you've got a brilliant back line, well, you play to your strengths. You might improve your forwards, and that was the Raiders in 88 when I got there. Um, they had a big-name back line and a no-name forward pack. Um but eventually the Fords, the Lazaruses, the Walters and Bradley Clydes of this world, you know, turned out to be as good as any anyone that played. Um, so, but, you know, at the time I had with Ricky and Laurie and Mal Meninger and, you know, uh, Gary, uh, Laurie in the centres, 5'8", you know, Peter Jackson, uh, Chris O'Sullivan, Ivan Henjack, you know, Kevin Walters, they were all playing there in 88. So it was a backline team. Uh, Chica Ferguson on the wing, Gary Belcher at fullback, you know. So we moved the ball, and that's why Ricky got his game of halfback, because the other halfbacks couldn't throw the ball as far as he could with his left hand, in particular left to right, the rugby union background, and him kicking left and right footed. Uh, the others were, as many ways, as competitive as Rick. And that's a big statement because there's mm. not too many more competitive than Rick. Mm. Mm. But Ivan Henjak, Chris O'Sullivan, you know, those sorts of guys, yeah. But uh, Rick had a skill set that suited what I wanted to do based on what the team looked like, you know. Um, most halfbacks, Greg Alexander, Roy Simmons, they could not throw a left to right. They had to turn their back to throw right to left, you know. The skills of the game have improved dramatically because of coaching and also full-time football. But uh, in those days, um, Ricky could throw a left-to-right pass as far as he could throw a right-to-left and, you know, cut out four people and when you got back line that we had. So, you know, those sort of things, um, I'd like to think people, you know, an attacking style of football, um, to me, is the style to play, you know? Now, if you can score 30 points a game, your opposition have to be able to score 31, uh, 31 to beat you, yeah, and not every team can do that. And I use that as uh, my philosophy, simple as that. Played schoolboy 40 years back, so I didn't play as a bullfed forward, as they say. 
played as a back. I used to love to play and run with the ball and kick a ball and so on. I was a goal kicker and all that. Never got to do that in grade, but uh, the old toe poke football. But basically it was all about, um, you know, using the ball and attacking and scoring tries. And uh, so that was my background. So that's what I – and I built a team around that, you know, players who could – who, who could make a difference in the team offensively were the first I'd look at before I'd look at their defence. If they couldn't tackle, well, they wouldn't have got that far if they can't tackle. And then it's just a matter with defence is putting a system together of defence. If they can all tackle and you get them doing the same thing, whether it's jamming in or drifting out or doing whatever, man on man, um, as long as they can tackle one-on-one, then they're okay. They don't have to be brutal, you know, or, uh, you know, champion wrestlers and all that sort of stuff. But although the game, you know, definitely the speed of the play, the ball controls the game somewhat. But I, I, I firmly believe in the offensive side of the, the game and other coaches will say differently. But um, I know in 05, um, we were giving away a lot of points, um, scoring a lot of points. Um, we got into the semis against the best teams in the comps, St. George, um, Brisbane, and uh, Parramatta, and um, Bron- uh, Bronc- uh, not Broncos, I said that, uh, Cowboys. Um, we, we had, on, on average, 10 points a game scored against us, on average, and 32 points for. So we went through the semi-finals undefeated, right? Averaging thirty-two points and only giving up ten. Whereas during the year I was averaging uh, just mid twenties, where we had to score thirty to win, and we were. But we were capable of doing it, and um, uh, but we didn't have, for whatever reason, the size, the experience, and lots of other things in in defence. So we had to scramble well in defence. You know, someone made a break, everyone's effort was to get back on side really quickly, which we, we were able to do because we weren't a big side. Um, so, you know, and the Raiders, of course, you know, we had two, we had two areas there. The 88, 88 side should have won it, great side. Um, had all those players before they went off to Brisbane. Some of them went off to Brisbane, semi back on them. Then we, re- then we won it, you know, 89, 90, and unlucky 91. And then had to reinvent ourselves and get good again for 94. So, but again, it was with the core of the team, you know, Laurie, Ricky, Mal, and so on. Um, and a good bunch of young kids coming through the Mullins and that of this world, Croker. And we redid it again. But to say, I was very, very lucky to be involved with those guys, you know. Like, you know, I might have helped them, but they certainly helped my reputation too. Don't worry about that. Him. Worried the hell out of me as well uh, that everyone would get get to the game on time and I'd have no problem after the game <laughs> when, they, <laughs> when they hit when they hit Canberra uh, on a nightclub. I'd have to go down there. That was my excuse anyway. I'd go down there, and make sure I stayed with them to make sure they they did the right thing. Well, Canberra uh, is a small town, and I'm sure you had your feelers out for what those boys were up to. <laughs> but Tim, yeah, I was told. Don't worry. It's had been an absolute pleasure to interview you today and to get to know you over a few phone calls as we prepared it's just uh, it's a complete masterclass and i'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening whose career
career you've helped along the way and whose lives you've touched through those fan events and so forth. But I can only thank you again for making the time available and taking us a little bit behind the curtain on what's been a stellar career. Thanks, Paul. Thanks very much, mate. It's, uh, it's brought back a lot of memories, good and bad, but more good than bad, mate, so don't worry. So, uh, and, uh, and I'll be ready for the phone calls from Ricky and that when it, if and when it comes. <laughs> I'll see you next week anyway. You'll probably you'll let, me, you'll let me know then. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, Paul. All the best. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Tim Sheens. I hope you got a lot out of Tim's story and found a few ideas that you can bring back to your own dinner table, locker room or work table for discussion. When I listened back, some of the other key highlights for me were how his experience having coached four players who have ultimately gone on to coach their own premiership teams has taught him that you can't pick who is going to go on and become a good coach. His view that when you leave a club, you leave a legacy. When you go to a club, you gain a legacy. And the challenge is to do what you can to improve it. And how if you don't treat the players with respect, you won't last long in the job. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Trent Williams, who after listening to our Brandon Joyce podcast said, great listen and lessons from a legend. Thanks, Trent. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.